You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On Worldview this week, we hear today from Israel, where politics takes a lurch to the right as Benjamin Netanyahu brings controversial right-winger Avigdor Lieberman into the cabinet against a background of increasing tensions between the government and the army. And from Austria, where the narrowest of defeats of the far-right Norbert Hofer in the presidential election is seen as little cause for rejoicing. Europe's lurch to the anti-politics, anti-immigrant right continues apace. And in Beijing, last week's 50th anniversary of the opening of the Cultural Revolution was most remarkable for its silence, the dog that didn't bark, as it were. The current ambivalence of the Communist Party about those bloody days which touched so many people says something perhaps about its deep insecurity. I'm Patrick Smith. Worldview is an Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from journalists and correspondents around the world. I'm joined this week by Mark Weiss in Jerusalem, Eric Frey of Der Standard in Vienna, and Didi Kirsten Tatlow of the New York Times in Beijing. Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's Conservative Prime Minister, has never flinched from controversy, and in recent days he's brought the far-right nationalist Avigdor Lieberman into government. One close ally, Moshe Yalon, has resigned in protest and quit the Likud party. And now we have the most right-wing administration in Israel's 68-year history. Former Prime Minister Ehud Barak has warned that Israel has been infected by the seeds of fascism. Former Defence Minister Moshe Arons sees it as a turning point in Israeli politics and expects it to cause a political earthquake. So it's not just a reshuffle then. What we're talking about is an attempt by the Prime Minister to um, shore up his wafer-thin majority. For more than a year now, he has governed with only a, a majority of one in the Knesset. Uh, He came to realize a couple of months ago that this could no longer continue. So he started looking for potential coalition partners from the opposition. He negotiated for many weeks with the main opposition uh, center-left party, the Zionist Union, uh, led by Yitzhak Herzog's Labour Party. They were reportedly very close to clinching an agreement. But at the last minute, uh, the prime minister switched tactics and signed a deal with uh, Avigdor Lieberman's far-right Israel Beitenu party. Um, so it is a significant shift in the uh, government coalition. It certainly moves it further right. Um, and um, it remains to be seen if this will be reflected in significant policy changes. Now, who is Avigdor Lieberman and why is he such a polarizing figure? I, I gather he was very involved in, a, in an intervention recently about a case involving an Israeli soldier of, Palest- of a Palestinian militant. Yes, he is a 57-year-old um, immigrant from the former Soviet Union. He was born and raised in Moldova, uh, where actually he served as a bouncer before uh, immigrating uh, to Israel. Um, He's formed, after working uh, in Prime Minister Netanyahu's uh, bureau as his bureau chief for many years, uh, the two um, uh, fell out and um, Lieberman formed his own party, which was um, certainly initially um, basically supported by uh, Israel's, uh, or a large part of Israel's one million Russian immigrant community. Uh, He's very outspoken. Uh, Some of his comments include uh, calls for Israel to reoccupy the Gaza Strip, to uh, oust the Palestinian leader, Mahmoud Abbas. 
He once even um, said if there was another war between Egypt, Israel should bomb the Aswan Dam. Now, recently, as you mentioned, um, he had a serious falling out with the Prime Minister over an incident about a month ago in which an Israeli soldier in the occupied city of Hebron in the West Bank shot dead a Palestinian who a few moments earlier had stabbed Israeli soldiers. This Palestinian was lying wounded on the ground, was clearly no threat to anyone, and the soldier went up to him and shot him in the head, killing him. Now, um, the defense minister, the outgoing defense minister, Moshe Ya'alon, was very quick to condemn the soldier and called for him to be brought to justice. Whereas Avigdor Lieberman not only came to the uh, soldier's defense, uh, even though he had killed uh, this stabber in cold blood, he went um, physically to uh, uh, out to stand outside the courtroom when the soldier was brought for his first hearing uh, and argued, uh, spoke in the, in the soldier's defense. So this is the kind of person that's coming uh, into the defense ministry, uh, and it remains to be seen if his uh, outspoken and populist right-wing rhetoric will be reflected in his policies. The feeling is in Israel that it won't be, that he will moderate himself, and that the uh, Lieberman we've seen these years uh, outside in the opposition, um, the populist Lieberman, uh, will um, will be tempered, will be um, a more moderate uh, defense minister when he realizes that um, the extreme policies he advocates uh, are not necessarily uh, the best for Israel once he is in the position of defense minister. I was struck by some comments of uh, Netanyahu on Lieberman's appointment, and where he said, ultimately, it's the prime minister who directs everything, together with the defense minister, with the chief of staff, and apparently I haven't done such a bad job during my years as prime minister, the implication being that Lieberman won't really be in charge. And I have to say that they those comments echoed what I was told by a senior Israeli foreign ministry official, uh, a couple of years back when Lieberman was foreign minister, who he said virtually the same thing, that I shouldn't really pay much attention to Lieberman because Netanyahu was the one who was in charge. Well, the, let's take the example of Lieberman as foreign minister. He's served two stints uh, as Israel's foreign minister. And um, when he was in that senior position, uh, again, his um, actions did not match his previous uh, outspoken rhetoric. He was relatively moderate as foreign minister, realized that he had to uh, uh, discuss issues and meet with uh, foreign uh, representatives from all over the world. Uh, And he was much more responsible as foreign minister than he was as a a member of the opposition. Uh, And that's what many people, uh, many Israelis uh, will hope will happen when he's defense minister. And there is some justification for the prime minister's uh, um, uh, comment that... uh, Although the defense minister is considered here the most important position after prime minister, and remember we're talking about a country that's in almost uh, ongoing state of war or semi-war with security incidents almost daily here, and in a country that uh, everyone sends their children to the army. So it's a very, very important position, obviously the significant position for defense minister. But in recent years, particularly, uh, decisions, uh, defense-related military questions have been taken very much in tandem together, the prime minister and the defense minister. Uh, If you look, let's take the example of Israel's last war in Gaza, um, where Lieberman, as a a member of the opposition, uh, together with the other far-right party, um, 
led by uh, the current uh, education minister, Naftali Bennett, were uh, advocating for a much uh, hardline approach of toppling the uh, Hamas regime, uh, reoccupying the Gaza Strip. It was the prime minister, together with the then defense minister, who rejected this line. Uh, and even though the military operation went on a month, went on for 50 days, in fact, uh, there was certainly no uh, aim amongst the top leadership and the military echelons uh, to reoccupy the Gaza Strip or topple Hamas. So it could be that uh, the prime minister uh, will have a moderating influence um, along with the, uh, uh, the Israel Defense Forces top brass on Lieberman. Now, his appointment to defence comes at a time when Netanyahu has been in open conflict with senior members of the military. Uh, partly it was to do with the characterisation by a general of Israel as having features of Germany during the rise of, of Nazism. And the general has been backed by, by others. So there are strained relationships with the army at the, at the moment, and presumably Lieberman's appointment is not going to do anything to dispel those. This remains the first and key critical question when, uh, when uh, Lieberman will enter the defense ministry. Uh, the military establishment uh, uh, is very strong in Israel and very well respected uh, uh, by the general population. The last, thing I th the last thing I think that Avigdor Lieberman will want is a head-on clash with uh, the top generals uh, and, and the defense ministry establishment. I think he'll... Um, It'll be very much a learning curve for him. He's not the first man to enter uh, the position of defence minister without a military background. Uh, but traditionally, most defence ministers uh, in Israel have uh, in the past served uh, senior generals in the IDF. So he has a lot to learn. And I think um, he will surround himself with uh, military advisers who will... Um, probably very much toe the line with uh, the IDF establishment, uh, certainly won't be um, pushing Israel into a gung-ho policy uh, or immediate confrontation with Hamas in Gaza or with Hezbollah on Israel's northern border in Lebanon. And also there's the question of how will he handle the uh, ongoing occupation in the West Bank, which also comes into the purview of the defense minister. Um, the outgoing defense minister, Moshe Ya'alon, um, handled quite well, most Israelis believe, um, the spate of violence um, that was um, a feature uh, of Palestinians in the West Bank over the last uh, six months or so. Um, he succeeded in uh, certainly decreasing significantly the level of violence. And I don't think the military leadership in the West Bank um, will be backing any... Um, any, any moves by the defense minister um, to go in heavily in the Palestinian cities or renew that confrontation. Thanks, Mark. Next, we go to Vienna. Remember, if you'd like to support the podcast, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. It also helps if you rate and comment on the podcast. And now to Vienna, where the far right has also been making waves. Eric Frey, your presidential election was all rather a close shave, the margin of victory, something like 31,000 votes out of 4.5 million valid votes cast. Too close for comfort. The Austrian political class must be in real shock. Yes, well, this has been uh, a real, a real uh, tense time, now, a tense period since the first round when the far-right candidate Norbert Hofer got already 35% of the votes. Uh, and there were 
plenty of expectations or fears that he would be the next president. Uh, it barely he was beaten by the by by his by his rival Alexander van der Bellen, who was able to rally all those votes who did not want a far right politician to be the head of the state, the first one in Western Europe. But the uh, but the knowledge is now that 50 percent, almost 50 percent of the, of the population of the voters are willing to vote for a candidate who is basically against European Union, European integration, and would drastically change the political climate in this country if this party would ever come to power. So now the, the whole worry is, the concern is, uh, how can this trend be stopped? How much do you see this as, as a specifically Austrian phenomenon? How much, how much are European part of European trend? And for example, well, did the UK Brexit debate play, play a part in the discussion? No, Brexit has certainly not played a part in this discussion. Brexit, uh, Britain seems to be far away. The refugee crisis that uh, has hit uh, Austria last summer and is still lingering has been the much more important factor. But what we shouldn't forget is Austria's far right has always been on the forefront in Europe. It's been the strongest far right party um, uh, in any West European country, starting already in the in the in the early 1990s. Uh, so Austria has been uh, ahead of other European countries, but the European trend has certainly uh, exacerbated this development. So uh, as, as far-right parties have gained everywhere, they've gained for the same reason that they're strong in Austria, just Austria has a little bit more of it, and now for the first time the far-right the far right, uh, forces can claim to to have almost half of the population. Although this was not a parliamentary election, it was an election for a president who is a figurehead, mostly a symbolic, a sim mostly symbolic post. So people were willing to vote for the candidate, Norbert Hofer, uh, being aware that it wouldn't fundamentally change the way this country is governed. And tell me a bit about Alexander van der Bellen. Who, who, who is he? And in a strange way, he's also part of the anti-establishment backlash. Isn't that right? Well, he is, uh, but in a very mild way, because he is, he was an, he's an economics professor who was once a social democrat, and he switched to the Greens. He was the leader of the Green Party and quite popular, mostly because of his uh, very deliberate uh, and also moderate approach. So he has always been able to uh, to 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 also uh, attract uh, more moderate centrist voters. Uh, he has been out of politics for several years. He has gotten. He's now over 17 years old. 70 years old, and his return into politics was a bit of a surprise. Um, he uh, and and he 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 is very much a candidate these days. He in this campaign, he was a candidate of the status quo. He would not rock the boat. He wouldn't bring any major change. He would say he said he wants harmony. He wants uh, he wants to mediate. So people felt quite comfortable to vote for him uh, if they wanted to keep things more or less they are as they are. He was certainly more attractive as a personality than the two candidates from the from the governing parties, from the Social Democrats and from the Conservatives. And this allowed him to get into the runoff and now to become president. And then Norbert Hofer, uh, who is he? And 
um, he he tried to pose in a way as a as a more presentable uh, face of of the far right, uh, moderating his his views during the 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 campaign. But what what is the true uh, Hoffer? This is hard to say, but the general belief is that he's not that as moderate as he appears. Uh, once in a while, he really pulled out his hardline edge and 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 and, and he showed it. Uh, in some of his announcements uh, in the campaign, particularly in more tense TV debates, were quite uh, were quite radical. So his, 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 his threats to really take control of the political life in this country, to dismiss the government, and once he even said, "You will be surprised what I will be able to do." Um, but this still, because, he was. This is because the president doesn't really have many powers, but one power he does have is to dismiss the, the, dismiss the, the constitution government. Constitution gives the president quite far-reaching oh. powers, but they have not been used in over sixty years. So, so it's a it's it's, it's an ambiguous uh, situation, and the kind of the real the the, the real constitution, the one that is being lived says the president should not mix in in day-to-day politics. Hofer suggests that he will be a different type of, of president, which appealed to some voters, who said we need more, more drastic change, but also, uh, but also scared others away. But still, he has been, he's, he's, he's charming, pleasant, smiling, and also in his, in his interviews and in his, in his speeches, he often came across as quite a regular and quite moderate person. He's a chameleon, as some journalists have written. He has really, he has really two sides, and he will always uh, he will always think which side to pull out, which fits the moment. One of the uh, commentaries which I've seen written about him uh, in the international press uh, it relates to his support, allegedly, for the idea of pan-Germanism. Is is that is that um, substantial or is that a that's a very small fringe even in the Freedom Party? Isn't that right? It, it, the thing is that the pan-Germanism is the root of the party. The party was founded uh, after in the in the early 1950s by 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 mostly by former Nazis and. Uh, their uh, ideology for decades was actually pan-German. They said, we don't believe in Austrian nation. We kind of see ourselves as part of the German nation. And uh, and they are also, uh, in, in Hofer and like many of his, of his other, other leading party members, also were or are members of like student cooperatives, which are really radically nationalist and also pan-German. So this tradition is there. It's just often put away. It's hidden. Uh, it's shoved aside, but it comes out once in a while. And for example, so he's so so Hofer's uh, party leader Heinz Christian Strache, just uh, shortly before the for the the, the the runoff election, gave an interview where he called for the for the uh, reunification of North and South Tyrol, uh, which is a totally radical and unacceptable proposal. So uh, the party doesn't want to talk about it too much, but sometimes they can't stop from doing it, that they have really uh, these very strong pan-German roots, in which, which, uh, which also tie them into uh, at least n- n- national socialist traditions. And, and South Tyrol, just to explain, is, is, uh, is part, of, part of Italy, and um, 
uh, it, the question of unification of, yes. of Tyrol would be would be uh, would involve taking a large chunk of Italy, um, which is clearly something that would be very difficult and controversial. Um, what is going to happen in in the general election? Opinion polls apparently suggest that the FPO would would win. Uh, a plurality, if not a majority, is that is that right? If the elections were, were would be held today, they would win uh, plurality. They would they would g- gain about a third, thirty three, thirty four percent of the votes, and they would not. And the current governing coalition of the formerly two major parties would lose the majority. However, we still have about two years to go to the next election. There's a new chancellor now, Christian Kern, who uh, the former railway manager who is the leader of the Social Democratic Party. He, he, uh, he took this position after Chancellor Werner Feynman resigned in, in, in also after this major election setback in the first round of the presidential vote. And Cairns seems to be more dynamic, more eloquent, uh, far more popular than his predecessor. He also has made a strong point about trying to cooperate well with his coalition partner, with the, with this, with the center-right People's Party, promising to stop the squabbling that has really uh, overshadowed the government for now for, 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 for years and years. And if he succeeds, he can probably, at least he and his party, could stop the erosion of this government and, and, and push back the People's Party and maybe uh, at least maintain the current, uh, the current majority, the current share of, of votes. And keep the people to keep keep the, free, the far right freedom party from power. So this is still open, and we have to see what's going to happen in the next two years. I mean, it was quite striking, though, that neither the the Social Democrats nor the People's Party were particularly enthusiastic about supporting Hoffa's opponent in this election. And is there any danger that the People's Party might be tempted to say, well, perhaps coalition with with the Freedom Party is something that we would look to? There is always talk about it. Uh, the, the, the People's Party formed a coalition with the Freedom Party back in the 2000s. Uh, uh, this was still under Jörg Haider, the, the, who, who, who later died in a car, in a car crash. Um, the, the, the thing is, for the People's Party to be the junior partner to a, a radical, demagogic, uh, far-right party is not very attractive. And, it doesn't, and there is no clear sign why it would help them in any way. So uh, they, they, I don't think either them or the Social Democrats would really like to go into coalition with the Freedom Party, but they would like to keep the option open because it gives them more leverage also in the current coalition. So their tactical decision not to endorse uh, Van der Bell and Hofer's opponent too strongly was a way to just also to, to keep these options open and also to remain attractive for Hofer's voters. Let's not forget, half of the country voted for him, and you certainly don't want to put them into the, these voters into the far right or even Nazi corner. You want to suggest, look, you're still welcome. You always come, can come back to us. It's a dangerous game. Thank you very much, Eric. You're listening to the Irish Times. Now to Beijing and to Didi Kirsten Tatlow of the New York Times. China's cultural revolution, which began 50 years ago, lasted for the best part of a decade and still marks a whole generation of people who were involved. It's a period of mass deportations of young people to the countryside, of public torture and execution of professionals and intellectuals and indeed ordinary workers by uncontrollable student Red Guard militias. 
It is also the story of children persuaded to denounce their parents uh, of up to one million dead and 10 million affected by denunciations and persecution. And still very much in the memory. What, what was it all about? It was kind of Chairman Mao's last gasp of power, if you like. He had been severely weakened by pretty crazy, very crazy policies previously, such as the Great Leap Forward, which killed somewhere around 30, 40 million people. And he uh, was attempting to kind of reassert himself. And that means that, you know, one, one interesting debate about the Cultural Revolution, soi-disant, as it's called, um, is that it may really have begun and probably did, in fact, begin earlier in 64, maybe even 62 to as Mao tried to sort of claw his way back from the disaster of the Great Leap Forward. Um, and what it took the form of was his idea, basically, of perpetual permanent revolution. And that was a violent thing. And, and he, he, But he managed um, to enlist uh, large numbers of students in, in the, the, these campaigns. And they were more or less uncontrolled, these Red Guards. They were. I mean, it's a very interesting uh, example, if you like, of what happens when a society actually sort of lets go of public order entirely and just says, okay, you go and rebel, revolt, beat, smash and loot was the actual phrase. And when you give young people, teenagers, uh, when in fact you order them to cause havoc, uh, you know, kind of a lord of the flies writ large. And I think that's pretty much exactly what happened. Um, He felt that the youth were because they were unwritten and, um, you know, blank pages, if you like. He felt that they could be manipulated, could be controlled, could be ordered. And they, you know, really did go out and cause terrible chaos. And it was largely a revolt of the young, uh, but not a spontaneous revolt. I think that that's very important to understand. They were, they were ordered what to do, and they were ordered to attack older people, traditions, culture. Now you've been you've been writing uh, testimony of of some of the people who were affected by the by the Cultural Revolution. Were there the stories that particularly struck you? There really are, and I feel as if you know after many years of following this and reading this and kind of knowing about it, and then once again going out there and calling two people, if you like, to tell us your stories. We were richly rewarded with the things that people were prepared to share with us. And I'm very grateful to people who spoke out. I mean, two stories that really stuck with me. Um, one of them was about a five-year-old child whose parents were both, I think, intellectuals, were taken away. The child was abandoned at home, had a younger sibling who was two or three. That younger sibling's, their ai, which is their nanny, realized that if a two or three-year-old was left alone, they might actually die and spirited the child away to the countryside with her when she was ordered out of the city. Um, but the five-year-old was, seems to have been left alone in the city and basically went around trying to find her parents in the university campus where they lived. And she brought with her a stool so that she could stand on it to get a little bit of height to see if the sort of, you know, the accessions where, where teachers were criticized and often beaten and sometimes killed um, to see if it was her parents who were there. And she told this amazing story of seeing a person who was a friend of her parents and being so frightened by the violence that she 
picked up her stool and ran. And as she ran, she slipped and fell into a ditch and broke her finger, I think it was, that she actually broke it. Anyway, she damaged it. And to this day, 50 years later, she talks about the finger still being bent. She got no medical care at the time. And she must now be about 55. And it's, the finger is still bent, still damaged. And she said it still hurts. And this is sort of a, a living symbol of carried over pain that I found very, very moving because it really speaks to how people still live with the trauma. Um, another story that really fascinated me, I thought was very novelistic um, in a way, was the story of a sable coat that belonged in the family of a, of a well, a, quite a rich family that had once kept the children of the family warm at night. I think there were three of them. That coat was confiscated as a symbol of wealth and therefore badness. And um, to this day, the person who wrote into us says the coat is still believed to be in the possession of the family that confiscated it 50 years ago. And to me, there's something sort of Proustian about that image, you know, the loss of something very precious, um, emotionally precious rather than financially precious. Of course, the violence was 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 great, um, but amid this violence, there were also these moments very poignant. You you've written um, testimony largely of the, of the uh, people who were affected uh, by the the attacks, and it's interesting that in recent times there's been much more written by uh, survivors. Has there been much testimony of of people who participated in the Red Guards, either justifying or, or explaining themselves? Now that's a really good question, and in fact. Um, it's something that I'm working on now um, because I think that that's a very, very important aspect of the of the puzzle. And what it is is that after we did the victims' testimony, which you know has been written about a lot, if you like, over the years, um, many people wrote in to say, "Well, what about the perpetrators?" And that is something that has begun in recent years in a very uh, low-level fashion, that individuals here and there, usually they're kind of low-level low individuals, people who were not the leaders of the Red Guards, um, have begun to write a letter to their teacher saying sorry, or to just sort of put something on the internet. It's not that widespread as far as I can tell, but it, it does happen. Um, one thing I just heard today, in fact, and I wonder... I'm not sure if this is yet for sure true, but it seems that there is some downward pressure from the leaders of the Red Guard movements of the time to not let these people speak out too much because of the implications that the leaders would then maybe one day be called on to apologize. And that's, of course, something that's happening now is that we're seeing a real kind of pushback from, from the top. There's kind of a kibosh again on opening this wound up any further. Do you do you have a sense that young people, uh, the newer, the young generation, uh, have an idea of what the Cultural Revolution was? I mean, have their parents passed on the message? They have sometimes passed on the message in a conscious way. What I would say is more interesting to me is that amid the difficulty of doing that, because you cannot speak freely about the Cultural Revolution in China today, I think that a lot of unconscious messages have been passed on and we're seeing a lot of what psychoanalysts call intergenerational trauma, which can be a very vivid thing. And I think that that is something that people are picking up on 
whether they want to or not here. And some of the people who wrote into us, in fact, uh, included lines such as, my parents never really said very much about what happened except that it was a time when you really couldn't open your mouth at all, you know, unless you said exactly the right thing. But I can sense that it was very frightening for them. So they're talking about their emotional responses to things that their parents may not be saying. And, and I think that that's very... Um, I think that that's significant. You know, not everything is on the surface. There's a lot of knowledge is transmitted more subconsciously. At the heart of the Cultural Revolution was was the cult of, of Mao himself. And uh, what one of the interesting things in recent years is, is uh, to an extent, a, a revival of of that cult, um, particularly within uh, left-wing elements of, of the party, and some suggestions that Xi Jinping... Uh, would like to see the culture revived. Uh, how do you view that? I actually see it rather differently from that suggestion. I don't believe for a nanosecond that Xi Jinping wants to see it come back. I think he was damaged by it, and I think that he knows that China was damaged by it, perhaps irro ir irrevocably in some ways. He was a victim himself but of of the of the cultural revolution. He was himself, for sure. He was. He was. He was basically a child on the streets. I mean, he his parents were both sort of removed. They were uh, his father was locked up, and his mother was taken away. Um, and he himself was kind of a, a Lord of the Flies character on the streets, you know, sort of with his gang and trying to stay safe. Someone took care of him, uh, an older person, and and you know there were you know there was fighting and there were were it was rough stuff. And uh, but I don't actually personally believe that he wants any of that back. I think that what what's going on here is that, like it or not, these these events and you know whether it's the Cultural Revolution or Hitler in Germany, um, become part of the national experience or the the cultural experience or the even the individual experience, and they're very hard to really fully ever get rid of in a society. I think that they linger on. And um, I think that what Xi Jinping might be trying to do to some extent is to simply repurpose the um, language of communism because he knows perfectly well there's a communist party that runs China, so we've got to keep on being communists. And he himself, I think, probably does have some idealistic ideas about the, the, the true roots of communism, um, which were, you know, largely bad egalitarianism. Um, so, you know, but I, I don't think that he wants any return of the Cultural Revolution. Maoism itself is is a, um, a vehicle through which tensions in the party are working themselves out. The, 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 the Maoists are, are pushing against uh, some of the things, the modernising uh, things that, that uh, Xi would, would uh, stand for. Yeah, it's funny, you know, because in a way this is just politics. And in a, in a Western democratic society, if you like, there would be all these voices out there. You know, there would be politics happening, lively debate. And um, that can't happen here because the party sort of runs the whole show. So that's, that means that these voices are very suppressed. They're still there, um, but they're not allowed to come into play. And that, I think that that's kind of a problem because, you know, you get, you get sort, of the, sort of the liberal Western view is that China needs, you know, more democracy. What that then means is that these voices are going to grow, in fact. You'll have a more left-wing, a, a more Maoist, if you like, because they'll, they'll hearken back to something that they know and, and, and can offer. Um, and you would see that growing. I, I'm completely sure of that. I mean, one of the things they're trying to suppress here, I 
do believe is is a left wing is a genuine if you like left wing voice whatever that means you know in this context here today Thank you very much, Didi. Thanks to Mark Weiss, Eric Frey and Didi Kirsten Tatlow and to our producer Declan Conlon and on sound Rob O'Sullivan. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. <laughs> <laughs>